0: In our continuing effort to free Jim up to see to the new um, facility, you have other elders inflicted on you. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness, all of the things that we strive to be by the grace of your Holy Spirit in learning from the Scripture. This morning, as we look into your word, it is with anticipation that you will speak to us, for you are the author. You are the author and finisher of our salvation and of our sanctification, and for that we are so grateful. Speak to us this morning through your word, like, Lord, might your Holy Spirit enlighten and illumine our hearts so that we might obey you even more today than we did yesterday. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do, in Jesus' name. When I began the book of 1 uh, Thessalonians, we looked at an introduction and the first four verses. A short review is in order because uh, since this first message I gave was in February of 2017, 1 Thessalonians, no, the, the, and I heard some intake of breath. The introduction won't take that long. 1 Thessalonians is a genuine epistle of the Apostle Paul and, and was written probably in 50 or 51 AD. It is an epistle full of thanksgiving. For Paul is delighted with the growth of this little church, composed mostly of Greeks and some Jews. He remarks often that this church was a comfort to him and a blessing. It was unnecessary for him to identify himself as an apostle, as he does in other epistles. His apostleship was not in question, but there were challenges. As I mentioned, we completed the introduction and we went through the first four verses. Uh, Paul reminded the Thessalonians that he prayed for them and that he kept in mind the work of their work of faith of labor their labor of love and their steadfastness and their hope they were a church on the move and he was glad of it the second message which was in december of last year touched on and i was talking with jim this morning it's really good if you can put your points into 3 or even fewer i'm still working on that but uh the first message had the 5 c's of the Thessalonians first uh, Thessalonians it was in chapters 1 verses 5 through 10 they were chosen they were convinced They were cherished, they were copycats, communicators, and they were calm as they waited for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were convinced of the truth of his words, of Christ's words, and life, both by the Gospels and the truth of the Scripture, as well as seeing it out, lived out in the lives of others that lived with them, that they loved. They knew that they were cherished by the Son of God himself, and so they became copycats of his life, communicators of the blessed gospel, both by word and by living it out. Finally, closing chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, they remained calm as they waited for the return of the great God and King who had purchased them forever for His glory. Now, the section that Jim read to you, uh, Acts chapter 16, that extended section, forms the backdrop to a lot of what's going on here. And I won't necessarily explicitly refer to it, but I will refer to some of the the uh, historical happenings, and you'll, you'll remember, oh, yeah, that was in that section there. And so that was the purpose of reading that. So chapter 2, which we're going to read real quick. Let's read chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know... We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst, amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the words of the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men." hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who was our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and our joy. So chapter 2 begins with Paul reminding the Thessalonians about how he came to them. Although he did not begin his epistle, this epistle defending his apostleship, it seems his leadership was being challenged. He will give them historical checkpoints, and those we will see some of them in the book of Acts reading, regarding what he had come through to bring them the gospel, and he will remind them, that he has never been deceitful, but has been entrusted with the gospel. His words were always straightforward and self-effacing. He treated them with love and concern, and he behaved blamelessly among them. He will finish up with thankfulness even in this chapter, and he delighted that the Thessalonians were his hope, his joy, and his crown of exultation. So we will be working through five points again, forgive me, I'll work on condensing things. And what I noticed this just the other day for those of you who are astute subtitle nerds that my first five points started with the letter C, these five points start with the letter D. Now, does that imply that when we go through the next section it will start with the letter E? I don't know, we'll have to see. So, we'll be working through five points. Paul and his helpers came to Thessalonica. They were Paul and his helpers were dedicated, they were determined, they were dependable, direct and deferential. So first one, verse one, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul begins by appealing to the historical events that occurred when he first came to Thessalonica. They knew that he came with a gift, a gift, the gift of the gospel, the most important gift there is. Now the Greek word translated vain, our coming to you was not in vain, is the word kenos, and it actually means empty. It means... um. Metaphorically, it's destitute of spiritual wealth. It's one who boasts of his faith as a transcendent possession, yet is without the fruits of that faith. What James says in 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 the book of James, where he says, "You show me your; I'll show you my faith by my works." These were people who did not do that. Metaphorically, of endeavors, labors, and acts which result in nothing, vain, fruitless, without effect. It's all hat, no cowboy. It's uh, it's the government worker leaning on his shovel. What a waste of a perfectly good shovel. That's what the word vain means. There's a good picture for you. This same word is used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, where Christ emptied himself. He made himself empty, bereft of all the things of deity. Well, not all of deity, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant. In this particular context, though, it bespeaks an action that someone performs, which is useless and vain. It's someone who comes to you supposedly with something you, ha- you can use, but he has nothing for you. His gift is emptiness. Paul came to the Thessalonians with the immeasurable gift of the gospel. He was, as we said the first point, he was dedicated to their salvation and their growth. He was not dedicated to getting, he was dedicated to giving. Clearly, Paul was being maligned and called a glory seeker. And as one commentator said, a job doer or a time server just doing his job he could have been accused of having a police report. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 16, that towards the end there, it talks about the police and, and the fact that Paul was in jail. He could have even been accused of having a police record. I think that the maligners of Paul would have stopped at nothing to smear his character, to, to besmirch the gospel, the, his gospel, anything to discredit him. But nothing could have been further from the truth. Paul put everything into his ministry and even put his life on many things. Life on the line many times. His dedication knew no bounds. He loved the Thessalonians, and he brought them the most glorious thing he could, the precious gospel of the living God. In a time when bringing that gospel could very well cost you everything. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your family. It could cost you your life. Even today, as you well know, though, the cost is increasing. Much of I believe, at least it's my impression, that much of what has caused the Church of Christ in the United States of America to languish, is we're not persecuted. It's not that dear to the church at large. These kinds of things pound into a person how dear the gospel is, how precious eternal life is, how wondrous what the Savior has done is for us. And so Paul brought that gospel at great cost. The pressure then and today, to abandon scriptural principles is, is growing. Many are caving in. I see it left and right. They're afraid to speak out. Does anybody know the 85 pronouns we're supposed to use now? Or is it 180? I don't know. It's That's just kind of a, an anecdotal representation of some of what's going on today. And people are caving in left and right. Paul did not. He was dedicated. He was dedicated to bring the gospel. He was dedicated to stand in face of opposition and continue to preach the word of God. Verse 2, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. On this second missionary journey, he had traveled from Antioch and then to Troas. Then he put out into the Aegean Sea and went to Samothrace, an island, and then from there north to Neapolis. Then he went to Philippi where he, where the event we heard in the opening scripture happened. No matter the pressure or the opposition, Paul was determined to bring the gospel to as many people as he possibly could. This was a remarkable series of events in Acts chapter 16, starting with the salvation of Lydia. And did you notice she was a worshiper of God, but she wasn't a saved worshiper of God until the Lord Jesus Christ chose her and elected her, and then she offered her home. That was a remarkable thing. I, that's a whole that's a whole separate sermon. I heard it this morning when Jim read it, like I heard it for the first time. The word of God is like that. It's wonderful. Acts, I mean, uh, Thessalonians is the best book in the Bible. So it was a remarkable series of events. Paul relieved this girl sorcerer, Lydia, from the from the salvation of Lydia. Proceeded to the to the uh, confrontation of the girl sorcerer. Paul relieved the girl of the demon that was inhabiting her, and then. Uh, which had been bringing her handlers much, much profit in the form of fortune-telling and such. <laughs> they were furious at this loss of income, and uh, they falsely accused Paul and his fellows, got them beaten, thrown into prison, and put into stocks, which would have been incredibly painful. That night culminated in the salvation of the Philippian jailer after the earthquake, which freed them. And then Paul went back to the household of Lydia, and then he departed. <laughs> this was just some of the suffering <clears throat> that he came through and still boldly spoke the gospel of God. He knew that at any moment he could be run through with a Roman spear for preaching, but he was determined to bring the gospel to the the hearers. In that suffering, there was bodily damage and public disgrace, which the word mistreated in the Greek refers to. Even so, by the grace of God, Paul and his fellow missionaries continued to proclaim the gospel and came to Thessalonica doing so. Paul was determined. This was, in fact, his second missionary journey, and his determination could be seen in the distance he travelled, the cities he visited, and the churches he founded. First he set out from Antioch, Syria, to visit the churches he had established in Asia Minor on his first journey. Then he revisited the churches at Derby and Lystra in Lyconia, Iconium, and Antioch in and Pisidia. From Pisidian Antioch, Paul travelled to Europe and planted churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Macedonia, Athens, and Greece in other places in Greece. Then he traveled to Corinth and founded the church there. He visited Ephesus and planted the church there, encouraging Aquila and Priscilla to stay there and serve the believers. They had been run out from Rome by Claudius uh, by a decree that no Jews could stay in Rome. Then he crossed the Mediterranean, again landing at Caesarea, and then on to Jerusalem and back to Antioch and Syria, a big round trip. The trip lasted about three years, and he covered 2,700 miles on foot and in a boat. Sail boats. 1,290 miles by sea, 1,410 miles by land. He was indeed determined. This would be akin, and it's not a great example because of the mountainous area that he traveled, but I was just looking at distances, and it would be akin by, to traveling by foot from Omaha, Nebraska to Tampa, Florida, and then from boat, from Tampa, by boat, from Tampa to Panama, City, Panama. That is the distance he traveled by foot. by boat. His determination by the grace of the Holy Spirit was all for God's glory. He was indeed a determined man. Verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Third characteristic was Paul could be depended on to preach the truth. His words, although he was accused of speaking from error and impure thoughts, lying to people, were always truth always the truth as inspired by the Holy Spirit. In that day, as in this, there is, there is a great temptation for preachers to compromise on the message of the gospel. There's always a pressure to accept the ideals of the day, whatever they may be. Men will look for ways to accommodate the evil of the day into their message so that they will not fall out of favor with the world. In his commentary, Robertson put it this way. Robertson, uh, put it this way. Few temptations assail the preacher more strongly than this one to please men even if God is not pleased, though with the dim hope that God will, after all, condone or overlook. Nothing but experience will convince some preachers how fickle is popular favor and how often it is at the cost of failure to please God. They'll seek seek the accolades of the world, hoping that God will overlook it and fail both their hearers and the Lord. It is not an easy calling if the word is in difficult times. It's one thing to preach, as it were, to the choir, and you're all good singers. I heard you. It's another to go out into the world and confront the error, the blatant hypocrisy, error, and Satanism that is out there, and preach the word. And Paul did that. His determination, his uh, he he could be depended on to do that. Paul could be depended on to exhort, that is to teach and to come alongside those who are spiritually needy. You could depend on his words to be true and devoid of impure motives. You could depend on his words not to be deceitful, as it says in the verse. The word translated deceit comes from a Greek word which means to bait somebody. It involves trickery and it is especially effective in hooking people who are in emotional and spiritual pain. This is common in some of the modern word of faith and prosperity movements. People who are struggling are prime targets of these con men masquerading as preachers. Their words are full of impurity, error, and deception. They want your money, and frankly, they want your worship. And both of those are supposed to be reserved to the Lord Jesus Christ. The implication in this as well was that of sexual impropriety. And is it not often that we see men in positions of power using that power to take effect to take advantage in this way. This was not Paul. His dependability was legendary. Continuing on with dependability in verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God, he says, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. His, ex- his dependability was also confirmed by being approved by God to be fully entrusted with the gospel of God. That, that is the most important thing to be entrusted with. And Paul had full full assurance of the father to be entrusted with that gospel. His critics had accused him of being a bait-and-switch con man, teaching falsehoods in order to swindle people out of their goods. Later, he will remind the Thessalonians how he treated them as a father with his children. The word approve comes from the Greek word dokumadzo. It implies a testing that results in approval. It's where we get the word document. Have you ever been asked to document something? Eh, can you document that? Footnote, please. Or citation. That's, where, that's what that word just talking about. He was approved. The word is further is in the perfect tense, which denotes an ongoing result. Paul's approval continued, and he pressed on day by day, delivering the gospel as an approved, dedicated, determined, and dependable apostle of God. Paul had been documented as dependable both by the direct declaration of God that he was to be his apostle, and by his sub- subsequent work for the gospel, which was trustworthy, sincere, and solid. And it's funny that one of the things that I'm thinking demonstrated to the early hearers how dependable he was was how dependable he was in persecuting the church. He was good at it, and he stuck with it. He traveled overland, secured letters, and went to, from city to city, dragging people into the streets. This is what he did. He was dependable in that way, if you will. So much so that when the Lord was directing Ananias to go and restore Paul's sight, he had to calm Ananias' fears by reminding him that Paul was, in fact, God's chosen instrument. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when Ananias was called to go to Paul, the Lord said to Ananias, said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. Paul did not speak to please men as many do. He did not accommodate his message to the time, trying to acquire a social status so that he could impact the social mores of the day. No, he preached the gospel, pure and unadulterated, knowing that it was God who would examine both his heart and the message he was preaching. His message would, in fact, impact the social issues of the day, but that was secondary. If you will, it was a fringe benefit, a blessed fringe benefit of the change in men's hearts that occurs when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell there. Leon Morris, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, in every age, this idea of preaching the right word. In every age, this needs emphasis. For the Christian preacher is always tempted to accommodate his message to the desires of his hearers. People do not want a message that tells them that they are helpless sinners and that they must depend humbly on God's mercy for their salvation. They are more interested in the social implications of the gospel. These, of course, must not be soft-pedaled, but the preacher must always put his emphasis on those doctrines to which Scripture itself gives priority. Today's preachers must, as Paul did, believe and hold out to the world the truth of Scripture. It is a compelling truth, but it is a dividing truth. It is certainly not PC. Men must not compromise God's Word in order to elevate themselves, to ingratiate themselves to others, or to in any way... Dilute the truth that comes from the pages of Scripture. It is that truth that changes hearts and lives. To modify it in any way is to do great disservice to the hearers who need it. Now it goes without saying, I hope, that men and men who are preaching the gospel need to learn proper communication. Bomb throwing is not always necessary, and uh, fire and brimstone is not always necessary, and. Careful and kind words are not always necessary. Being directed by God, Paul inculcated all of those into his epistles, all of those into his preaching. Verse 5 For we never came with flattering speeches, you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. The fourth one is, diff- is direct. Paul could always be counted on to be direct. He did not bandy words, nor did he dance around needful reforms. Whether he was dealing with the recalcitrant Corinthians, the Judaizing Galatians, or the doctrineless, doctrinally lacking Romans, he went directly to the needs. He didn't flatter, nor did he, man, did he speak in a manner geared toward profit. He had a deep sense of his accountability to God, and everything he did was predicated upon that accountability. Paul did not come to Thessalonica to get, he came to give. To give his life, to give the gospel, to give to these people the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the most important gift in all of creation. Most of the itinerant traveling preachers of the day swept into an area, speaking great flowing, flattering words in order to fleece the locals. They were snake oil salesmen of the greatest order, and they had much in common with the same today. There is really nothing new under the sun. Where have we heard that? Did someone recently preach through Ecclesiastes? I think so. There truly is nothing new under the sun. There were snake oil salesmen then who came to take, and there are the same today. Men who use their followers to enrich themselves. And when these false prophets, then and today, are called to account for their deception and their heresy, they cry out, touch not the Lord's, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And unfortunately, many of their followers take this to heart and defend them. This is a defense tool they use that is taken out of context and applied in a manner Scripture never intended. The Hebrew for the word touch implies harm, physical harm, and anointed ones are kings. In this context, David refused to kill King Saul when he had the opportunity, for that would be touching God's anointed. Prophets are in the Old Testament those men chosen by God to deliver his message 100% accurately every single time. If they proclaim God's desires, they were exactly God's desires as testified to by Scripture. If they spoke something that was going to happen in the future, they were 100% correct every time, or they were dead. Every time. This was also an injunction against doing God's true prophets physical injury. Nowhere in Scripture is anyone commanded not to look into the words of the prophet and see if they are not in fact true. What I say to you this morning, it is your responsibility to verify it from Scripture. Scripture is true, always and every time. As a matter of fact, this was the test of a prophet. If his words were not 100% true, he was to be put to death in Old Testament times. This implies evaluation. Evaluating heretical teachings from the so-called modern prophets is not doing them harm. It is in fact doing them good because it is calling them to account for their false teaching, their false prophecies, and their lying lifestyles. And it is protective of the flock entrusted to local elders for safekeeping. There was never a reason to concern oneself about Paul doing this, but he still welcomed verification of his words. In Acts chapter 17, 11, Luke mentions this, this, he makes this mention. He says now, speaking of the Bereans, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And further, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, that prophet demonstrated his willingness to be checked out. He said this in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They're dark. Accountability is clearly what is implied. One of the clear implications in this verse is that Paul was being accused of traveling around preaching out of greed so that he could get money. The word translated pretext is from the Greek "prophasis," and it connotes the idea of a cloak covering true motives, you know, the, the spy versus spy thing, covering someone's motives, covering a gun, covering impure actions. This describes men who get up on stage pretending to preach the gospel when what they are actually trying to get at is your pocketbook. These are men who say the reason they own a $36 million Gulfstream jet is so they will have private time to pray in between ministries because they cannot talk to God in a long tube full of demons. What is remarkable to me is that people continue to give them their money. What does that tell you about sheep? What does it tell us about sheep? Sheep. Paul was the opposite of this, working his way on mission trips, working his way along, making tents, doing whatever was necessary to support himself, spreading the gospel. There was no cloak. He would exploit no one, and he directly answered those who claimed he would. He was direct about this, saying that his speech was not for greed, and he calls himself to account to God for that statement. Verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul had the horsepower, if you will, to seek glory. And as an apostle, he could have exerted himself, exerted all kinds of authority, but he chose not to. He was, our final word, deferential in all that he did. It has been said that a lot of good can be done if if people don't care who gets the credit. It's when we decide we've got to have the credit that we subtract from the good And indeed, very little good gets done. Paul was not concerned about the credit he might receive as a minister of the gospel. His concern was for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners, which those two go together, by the way. And so he put aside his desire for aggrandizement. It is a desire that plagues all humanity. He put aside his ability to direct and control others so that he could more effectively minister the gospel. He didn't seek applause. He didn't seek recognition. He didn't seek prestige from anyone. He didn't get into the ministry because of his own ambition. God put him there. His preoccupation was to defer all the glory to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He had no desire to take from the Trinity the praise that was due to them. The fact is, this may be one of the most difficult aspects of ministry. When things are going well, souls are being saved. When the gospel is being proclaimed, and hearts are being changed, it is very difficult for those whose hearts are not fully committed to the Lord not to seek some glory for those happenings. When saints are being sanctified, when churches are a blessing, it is a cause and effect from God, from His Word, from the Holy Spirit, from the Son of God. It is in no way a result of the men who are responsible to preach and to lead. It is directly coming from, the hand of a giving and gracious God. Paul's ministry was quite possibly the most fruitful that ever happened, and he sought no glory for it. He didn't ask to be recognized. He just asked to be received so that he could preach and so that he could teach. He wasn't looking for satisfaction. He wasn't looking for that satisfaction that can come when men approve what you are saying and give you applause and accolades. He sought only approval from God, and he called them to witness. He said, that God was his witness. Paul was truly dedicated, determined, dependable, direct, and deferential. So I close with this. Can this be said of us? Are we dedicated to seeing souls delivered from hell and then sanctified day by day? Do you have folks that you are mentoring, that you are discipling, that you are leading and, and in this particular aspect, we have to remember that it's a lot like hiking up a mountainside. Sometimes you're in the lead, and you're pulling the person up, and sometimes they're in the lead, and they're pulling you up. Because only the Son of God is perfect, and always disciples perfectly. Are we determined to press on through the difficulties the world pre- presents? And it will present more and more difficulties as the days come. Um, we've seen a lot of it in the news, where you can be sued for having a certain set of beliefs. And the question, I guess, is Is when they finally came to a court of law, were they able to be convicted that they actually had those beliefs? That's very important to remember as well. Are we dependable for those who need us in trying times? Are we seeking those who need help so that we can help them, so that we can help the hurting, so that we can bless those who need comfort? Are we direct and unafraid to proclaim the unadulterated word of God to a dying world that actually hates him? But there are elect out there, And we don't know who they are. And it is our responsibility to bring the gospel so that they might hear it. Because without a preacher, how shall they hear? And are we deferential enough to truly be grateful to God so that he gets all the glory for all the good that he does every day in our lives and in the world? Let's close. Father, we're thankful that you sent in those early days of building the church men like Paul, Peter, Peter. Barnabas, Mark, James, Luke, Epiphras, Titus, Timothy, men who you set aside and called to the ministry and that you had women and young people whose names remain unknown to us today that gave their all. They were dependable. They were a blessing to the world around them. They were terrifying to the powers that be. But you used them, Lord, to found the church Might we be those kind of people today, and we'll thank you for everything you're going to do in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.